Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, When All Are Welcome. It's based upon the lectionary readings for May 2nd, 2021, the fifth Sunday of Easter. Here's a question to ask ourselves as we move deeper into the season of Easter. What difference does the resurrection make in the way we live and practice our faith? Is the world of the empty tomb substantially different from the world that came before it? Or is Easter a mountaintop experience we briefly enjoy, but then leave behind, so that we can return to real life in the valley? For this fifth Sunday of Easter, the lectionary gives us the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. As a child, I heard this episode from the Acts of the Apostles as a one-way conversion story, that is, as the story of one person, Philip, the good evangelist, converting another person, the eunuch, the unsaved sinner. The lesson I took away from the story is that I, too, should share the good news of Jesus as boldly as I can, so that unacceptable outsiders might change and become acceptable insiders. I still read Acts 8, 26-40 as a conversion story, but what I cherish about it now is the two-way conversion it depicts. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate the Ethiopian eunuch's acceptance of the gospel as Philip shares it, and I don't for one moment want to diminish the import of his encounter with the word, both written and incarnate. But I believe we miss some of the beauty and significance of this story if we see Philip merely as a teacher or an evangelist. In my view, Philip is also a student, and what he learns from the eunuch has a great deal to tell us about the life of faith post-Easter. In his spirit-led encounter with the Ethiopian official, Philip learns that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything he knows about insiders and outsiders, piety and depravity, identity and belonging. The eunuch isn't the only person in the story who undergoes a conversion. The spirit leads Philip to experience a conversion, too. The story begins with the angel of the Lord directing Philip to a certain wilderness road that leads away from Jerusalem. There, on the geographical margins, Philip finds the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who occupies many margins. He is interested enough in Israel's God to make a pilgrimage from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, but according to Hebrew law, he is not free to practice his faith in the temple. It's possible that he is a Jew, but in Philip's eyes he is a foreigner, a black man from Africa. He is a man of rank and privilege, a royal official in charge of his queen's treasury, But he is also a powerless outsider, a queer man who doesn't fit into the social and sexual paradigms of his time and place. He is wealthy enough to possess a scroll of Isaiah and literate enough to read it, but he lacks the knowledge, context, and experience to understand what he's reading. In other words, the unnamed eunuch occupies an in-between space, a liminal space, a space of reversal and surprise that stubbornly resists our tidy categories of belonging and non-belonging. What kind of person, after all, earnestly seeks after a God whose laws prohibit his bodily presence in the temple? What kind of wealthy, high-ranking official humbly asks a stranger on the road for help with his spiritual life? What kind of long-rejected religious outcast sees a body of water and stops in his tracks because he recognizes first, before Philip, the supposed Christian expert does, that God is issuing him a gorgeous, unconditional, and irresistible invitation? I don't think it's a coincidence that Philip finds a eunuch reading Isaiah's description of the silent, suffering lamb. The word, after all, finds us where we are. 
It resonates in the deepest and most authentic places in our lives. The eunuch finds the story of the sheep who is led to slaughter, the lamb who is silent before its shearer, the creature who is humiliated and denied justice as his life is taken away from the earth. Perhaps this story calls to him precisely because it describes something of the complexities of his own life, his own religious, sexual, and racial difference, his own vulnerability. What I respect most about Philip in this moment is not that he evangelizes the eunuch in some programmatic way. It is that he meets the eunuch exactly where he is, and gently, with the guidance of the Spirit, shows him how his story of silence and resilience, suffering and rejection, belongs squarely within the story of Jesus. Yes, the Ethiopian eunuch hears the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and decides to become a follower of Christ. That is true and it is wonderful. But consider for a moment the question he asks Philip in return. Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Sit with this as a real question for a moment, a zinger of a question. Ponder it as a question Philip must grapple with as strenuously and as seriously as a eunuch grapples with the amazing truth of the gospel. What is to prevent me? What is to prevent me from belonging to the family of God? What is to prevent me from being welcomed as Christ's own? What is to prevent me from full participation in the resurrected life and community of Jesus? What is to prevent me from breaking down the barriers, fences, walls, and obstacles that have kept me at an agonizing arm's length from the God I yearn for? What is to prevent me from becoming not merely a hearer of the good news, but an integral part of the good news? I love the resounding silence that follows the eunuch's question, because the silence speaks what words cannot. The silence is thundering and gorgeous and seismic and right, because the answer to the question is silence. The answer, the only answer, is nothing. In the post-resurrection world, and the world where the Spirit of God moves where and how she will, drawing all of creation to herself, in the world where the Word lives to defeat death, alienation, isolation, and fear, there is nothing to prevent a beloved image-bearer of God from entering into the fullness of Christ's salvation. Nothing whatsoever. If only we, the Church, could find our way into this silence, this answer, this stunning liberation that leads to the expansive waters of baptism and belonging. How long have we pondered the eunuch's question, worrying over it, theologizing around it, policing its borders because we find the Holy Spirit's answer too unruly, too frightening? How many barriers have we erected around the font, the communion table, the altar, the word, How often have we, consciously or unconsciously, communicated the message that those who don't look, think, worship, live, speak, work, love, and practice, like us, do not and cannot belong? How many times has the Spirit invited us to a wilderness road of faith for an encounter that might truly convert us to a post-resurrection ethos and hospitality, only to have us resist and turn away? I don't ask these questions lightly, as if they are without cost or consequence. Because the fact is, if the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is true, if the post-resurrection world really is a world where all are welcome, then we are going to have to change a lot. Let's not kid ourselves, change is hard. Change hurts. Change makes demands on our hearts, minds, lifestyles, and liturgies that we'd rather avoid. But this is the work of conversion. This is the ongoing work of growing in faith. 
So let's be consistent. Let's practice integrity. Let us not demand the hard work of conversion from others when we remain unwilling to engage in it ourselves. In his beautiful commentary on the book of Acts, theologian Willie James Jennings describes the story of the eunuch this way. Faith found the water. Faith will always find the water. The eunuch wanted God as much as God wanted him, so God broke the connection between identity and destiny, between definition and determination. God inserted a new trajectory. The question is not about the wideness of God's embrace. The question is not about God's capacity or readiness to lead his beloved ones to baptism. As this story makes abundantly clear, the Spirit will do what the Spirit will do. The only question that remains is whether we'll participate in the joyful post-resurrection work of God or not. Look, here is water. What is to prevent us from stepping in? For books this week, Dan reviews An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. If the title of this book sounds familiar, that's because it's a clever play on the best-selling book by the radical historian Howard Zinn called A People's History of the United States. In that book, Zinn explored a simple question. Who gets to write history, and in doing so, shape the origin stories, myths, and narratives by which we live? Most history is written from above, that is, about presidents, generals, their wars, peace treaties, and the like. Zinn flipped this perspective upside down. He read American history from below, from the perspective of a coal miner, a black slave, or a factory worker. Indeed, in her acknowledgments, Dunbar Ortiz thanks and honors the memory of Howard Zinn. Today, there are 574 federally recognized tribes that live within the United States, many of them on 310 federal reservations. Their history dates back some 15,000 years. Like Zinn, Dunbar Ortiz tries to tell their history from their own perspective. It is a radical reversal of the common national narrative of what she variously calls the Columbus myth, the doctrine of discovery, and the exceptionalism of a manifest destiny. In her telling, this is a story of genocide. Quote, the very existence of the country is the result of the looting of an entire continent and its resources. End quote. And what was exterminated was not only the indigenous peoples, their very history was written out of existence. Consider just one example, which is explored at length in the book by Claudio Sant, Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory, which won a National Book Award. Nine months after Andrew Jackson was inaugurated as president, in his first message to Congress in December 1829, he called for the voluntary emigration of 80,000 Native Americans to lands west of the Mississippi River. Jackson's signature policy of Indian removal was one of the most shameful episodes in American history. In 1841, John Quincy Adams described this decade-long tragedy in his diary as a sickening mass of putrefaction. It is among the heinous sins of this nation, for which I believe God will one day bring them to judgment. Indian emigration was not voluntary by any stretch of the imagination, nor was it humanitarian. Rather, it was a state-sponsored mass deportation of unimaginable violence. It was a land grab by wealthy planters. It was a time of broken treaties and cynical promises, forced marches, racial subjugation in the name of white supremacy, a type of ethnic cleansing, and perhaps a form of genocide. People died from disease, cholera, measles, malaria, exposure, starvation, and exterminatory warfare. 
Having stolen Indian lands, the planter politicians then maximized their profits through all the woes and horrors of black slave labor. As the 1830s unfolded, so-called emigration morphed into expulsion and expulsion into extermination. The Indian question, as Sant shows, was America's counterpart to Europe's Jewish question. Dunbar Ortiz's version of this history has become a sort of standard of simplistic and even ideological historical revision. You will not learn about Mesoamerican child sacrifice and cannibalism from her. In more recent years, scholars have made further and more nuanced revisions, most notably in the burgeoning literature of single nation studies. I'm thinking in particular of the two volumes by Charles Mann and the two remarkable studies by the Finnish historian Pekka Hemelainen, The Komachi Empire and Lakota America, A New History of Indigenous Power. In what one scholar called the cameo theory of history, American indigenous peoples are a sort of blip on the graph of history. They make dramatic entrances, stay briefly on the stage, and then fade out as the main saga of European expansion resumes. In 1491, Mann describes his popular, powerful, and misleading stereotype that Columbus discovered a sort of timeless and unspoiled Eden, and a people who lived, as it were, outside of history. In this view, the Indians were suspended in time, touching nothing and untouched themselves, like ghostly presences on the landscape. Like man, Hamelainen rejects the various caricatures of American Indians, that they lacked agency, that they were barbaric savages of a primitive and pathological violence, tragic victims of European colonialism, or bit players on the stage of history. Far from it. He shows how at least some tribes were powerful empires in their own right. So without doubt, whether by disease or by state-sponsored violence, there was an extermination of indigenous peoples and their history. But to state it so polemically as Dunbar Ortiz does, ironically results in a sort of paternalistic perspective toward the people she intends to affirm. For films this week, Dan reviews Why Do I Hike? As a veteran of nine long-distance through-hikes, this little gem of a movie was an automatic watch for me. It explores the basic question that occupies many long-distance hikers. Why exactly am I doing this? The Croatian filmmaker and thru-hiker Nikola Tesla Horvat put together this 23-minute documentary from his thru-hike of the Colorado Trail in 2019 to answer his own question. He wrote, filmed, and edited the entire film by himself. He says that his budget was zero. One reviewer aptly described the movie as a love letter to long-distance hiking. Horvat's narrative considers four motivations for hiking, nature, time, community, and mental health. A fifth and final section summarizes his conclusions. Too many of us are estranged from nature. In long-distance hiking at two miles per hour, we're forced to slow down, both physically and mentally. Hiking provides a sense of community with the total strangers that you meet. Man is not man without other people. And as several people in the film attest, hiking is downright therapeutic. It engenders gratitude for the little big things in life, like a sip of water or a hot shower. In a sort of paradox, the wilderness heals us with its austerity. Horvat says that he's planning a sequel to this film that will be shot on the Arizona Trail, and which will turn from the why to the how, practical tips of hiking. This film is only available on YouTube. And lastly, for poems for this fifth Sunday of Easter, the real work by Wendell Berry. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work, and that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. 
the impeded stream is the one that sings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 2nd, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.